This is Hypercritical, weekly talk show ruminating on exactly what is wrong in the world of Apple and related technologies and businesses. Nothing is so perfect that it can't be complained about. By my co-host, John Syracuse. I'm Dan Benjamin. Today is December 9th, 2011. This is episode number 45. We would like to say thanks to our sponsors, Smile Software and Squarespace. We'd also like to mention that uh, this episode is brought to you, bandwidth for it, by Stitcher Smart Radio. You can hear all the shows from 5 by 5 and thousand other great podcasts on demand and on the go with Stitcher's free mobile app. I love this app. You just go to stitcher.com slash 5, F-I-V-E. Download it today and you might even win a hundred bucks. John, is it Jonathan or John Syracuse? Just John, J-O-H-N. So if I were to, if we were to go pull out your birth certificate, J-O-H-N. That's right. That's what you would see on it. Not J-O-N. That's right. I'm a fan of the J-O-N spelling. Not me. No. Need the H. It's distinguished. Hmm. So I'm not, I'm back to 100% today. Do I sound okay? Oh, you sound great. Yeah. Well, this is, this is me with a stuffy nose and I still have a cough too. So I will try to, I'll try to be muting when I cough, unlike certain other Johns with an H. He said uh, he had I, his hand on the finger on the mute button and, and, and coughed the whole time. Yeah, some, uh, you know, if your cough is too bad, sometimes you just can't, you just can't make it to the button. You're just coughing all the time. But I'll do my best. All right, I trust you. Yeah. You ready for some follow up? I'm, I'm I'm always ready for follow up, John. All right, we'll, we'll start with. Oh, I think this whole episode actually is going to be follow up. I have some wow new topics here and there, but they're really kind of follow up type things. Okay. Oh, by the way, my friend is telling me that J-O-N is short for Jonathan. Uh, it's not an alternate spelling of J-O-H-N. So if you see John J-O-N, that is an abbreviation for Jonathan. If you see John J-O-H-N, it's likely not an abbreviation for anything. This is what my friend says. Do you trust him? He's pretty book smart. Wow. Coming from you, a man who reads a lot. Well, I'm saying that as a backhanded compliment to say that he's not very street smart. Oh. All right. All right. So, I'm so resuming. So as I was saying, this this is mostly going to be follow-up, uh, but they're going to be long follow-ups. So I didn't even bother trying to put anything at the tail end of this because I know we're just going to go to the end right. on these things that I have. Sure. We'll start with the, uh, the bite-sized follow-up. We got one more pronunciation follow-up, and it's game-related. Just love the the pronunciation follow up. It's the the PlayStation handheld game console that Sony makes, called the PlayStation Vita. And I've talked about this several different times in several different shows, and always waffled about how you're supposed to pronounce it. Well, Chris Moore writes to tell me that it's Vita. V i t a is pronounced Vita. And uh, how do we know he's, I mean, he's right? How do we know he's on we the don't. money? We wait. What you do is you say this on the show, and then if someone, if we're wrong, fifty people write in and say that Chris Moore doesn't know what he's talking about, and that it's not actually Vita, it's Vita or something else. And you know, I, it, actually, it really bugs people. Like if we, if we are typically, it's me, but if we say something incorrectly, not I'm not talking about factually, which naturally would bug somebody, but if we, if there's a slight mispronunciation, even slight, oh, that people just, oh, they lose it, they come apart at the seams. Well, you know, with proper nouns, it's tough because, you know, they're just made up words and you're not sure how to pronounce uh, stuff like that. With regular English words, I think that's that's more valid to call people on that. Sure. 
Uh, but I, we want we strive for accuracy here. And actually, going back to the other one that I had the pronunciation thing for, the, the PlayStation uh, game spelled I-C-O that I always call Ico, but the apparently correct pronunciation in Japanese is Ico. I, I'm wondering, like, was it just me? I just happened to pick the wrong pronunciation for this game and never had occasion to say the name of the game, you know, as is with many of these proper nouns, that you, you read it online and you write it online and you write it in IMs and emails, but you never actually say it. Uh, or if you do say it, you know, no one cares. And you just use your pronunciation and it just sails by. Well, I was thinking back to uh, where I might have gotten ICO from or whether the pronunciation in the U.S. is supposed to be different or whether we're all just wrong together. And so I started doing some Google searches for the game, you know, putting in queries like ICO pronunciation and stuff. You see lots of people having different theories and a couple of different people coming up with like, oh, here's the Japanese characters and it's, it's unambiguous in Japanese. Uh, but one of the things you find with doing searches are a lot of walkthroughs on YouTube where you see people playing the game. And a lot of times the walkthroughs have a, have a narrator describing what he's doing. And, or at the beginning of the walkthrough, they say, here I am and I'm playing. And all those, all those walkthroughs say Ico. doesn't mean it's right. It's just strange that, the, I guess, the American default pronunciation when they see ICO is Ico instead of Eco. All right, moving on from pronunciation. I, I shoved in this follow-up just as a little tiny thing uh, that I want to cover before I get to the other stuff I had in there. Uh, I think you talked about it on, on uh, the talk show, the new iBooks UI. Yes, uh, John was talking about that, which now there's an option to remove the Chrome and, uh, and you just the entire expanse of the screen is now taken up just by the, the page, so you don't have the extra Chrome around there. Yeah, but it's an option. Remember. It's not a default. I don't remember if I complained about the iBooks UI at any point or if I felt like it was so so terrible that it wasn't worth even talking about. But but yeah, I've always hated that stupid image of a book inside an iPad. It's it's anachronistic, it's skeuomorphic, it's just it doesn't serve a purpose and they didn't even go whole hog with like changing the thickness of the pages as you go through the book. It's just it's just horrible. It's taking up space. Right. Uh and it's not, you know, uh but on the other hand, but the same same thing I said in my line review, so why does Apple do this? Well, it's whimsical and fun and reminds people of books. So if you're demoing an iPad in the store and you want to go to that thing that lets you read books online, you're like, oh, wow, hey, it looks like a book. And like it, it makes you comfortable with the idea that what you're doing is reading a book because it looks just like the book that you're used to. Uh, in that respect, that's the same reason I hate it, of course, that it, this is not supposed to be the old medium. It's supposed to be the new medium. But that smooth kind of entry ramp and comforting feeling of familiarity I bet sells a lot of iPads. Uh, you know, when you see in the ads on TV, if you just showed a page with a bunch of text on it, that means nothing to anybody. If you show something that looks like a book and with some text on it, they see the book part and they're like, oh, I can read books on this thing. Uh, okay, so well, is- hang, on, hang on a second. That might make sense for the iPad. But what about for Mac OS X? What's, what's the reason behind doing that with iCal or, or address book then? Oh, yeah. Well, like, like I said, it's, it's the, same, the same idea is that, uh, well... There's two separate things. One is, why did this come to pass? And I think the answer to that, we all assume, is because that's how Steve Jobs wanted it, right? But that that doesn't say, like, what is the value of this feature? It, independent of how it got to be this way, does this way have any value? And I think on the Mac, it has the same type of value in that, oh, this is an address book. It looks like the address book I'm familiar with. Uh, the, the calendar thing, less so, because, you know, it looks like a tear-off calendar, kind of, but it's got buttons all over it or whatever. Uh, on the opposite side of that are all of the things that are bad about it. And I think it's a net negative in both places, a, a pretty big net negative in both places. Uh, but there is, there are reasons, there are 
rational reasons in the pro column for this type of look. But for reading, it's just it's just hideous because after the first five minutes that you sort of realize that, yeah, this is where you go to read your books, that's just all visual noise. You don't ever look at the edges. They provide you no information. They take up room that could be filled with content or just, just empty space to be you know visually more calming. It's just not... You, you read books, it's thousands and thousands of screens full of text, and that other stuff is just in the way. So calling it calling it full screen mode is kind of one of those... Uh, I, I don't know how they came up with that. It's already full screen. iBooks always took up the entire screen. They just had to come up with a name for it that's not like uh, stop showing me ugly crap mode uh, or non-skeuomorphic mode or like expert mode or after the first five minutes mode or <laughs> you know it, it's almost like you should have called the other mode demo mode like they have demo mode for the tvs where they crank up the brightness and saturation right so everything looks like a fun house but that draws people <laughs> to the to things in the store <laughs> they don't ship the tvs in that mode and once you get it home you hope it's not in that mode and if it is i would hope that you change it right but in the store they go into like display mode or demo mode so that's like what I, ibooks is now the question is should they change the default uh Obviously, in the in-store displays, I think it's in everyone's interest for them to keep the the crazy book look because that, I mean it draws people over to it and it makes it understandable to people who have no idea that you can read books on this flat screen thing that this is the place where you go to read books and here's a book and isn't it cute and it's Winnie the Pooh with the little image. The same reason they always show demos with books with images and stuff like that. You're going to read a novel there most likely if you're going to read something, but they want to show the Winnie the Pooh thing because oh look it's got the little title header and the drop cap and the picture of Winnie the Pooh and it's cute and it looks like a little book. Uh, Really, I don't get expert users. I don't think should get too upset about defaults because we know how to change the defaults. It may be a disservice to regular users who will never know that there's a way to change it that they're going to be staring at that weird book thing. But in the grand scheme of things, I'll, they'll probably get over it. Uh, but it is <laughs> the fact that they called it full screen mode. I would never have guessed they would have used that sort of language jujitsu to try to give it a name that like you know admit no fault uh, but provide a feature that obviously it, you know they need and also ibooks i continue to get the impression that ibooks is not doing great like amazon is just eating their lunch amazon seems to have a better selection sometimes better pricing the kindle app is everywhere if any, if you ask anyone what should i get for my e-reader thing they say you know, kindle's got the mind share in terms of books and it's like apple's thing isn't also ran which is not the position Apple is used to being in with its digital sales, where iTunes is not an also-ran, right? They're, they're the dominant player in music, and I don't know how they're doing in video, but because it's tied to the iTunes name, like they feel like, yeah, we're the big dog, we're iTunes, but iBooks is not the big dog, and I don't know if it ever will. Uh, and so having this, having the weird book-looking thing is a great way to sell iPads, and I think that's why it, it, it's serving Apple's interest, but it's not a great, great way to become the dominant power or even a big player in the book market um, and I think the full screen mode is a recognition that we were you know Apple's behind on readers they're doing this silly thing which is a good way to sell iPads but it's not really a good way to attract the readers the readers know like the serious ebook e reader things I don't know any serious ebook reader person who intentionally buys an iBook version rather than a Kindle version most right. serious ebook reader people are heavily invested in the Kindle infrastructure and iBooks is like a curiosity I, I can't even remember the last time I've launched iBooks to do anything other than perhaps look at a PDF because the thing prompts me and it wants to open it in uh, iBooks and I say fine. All right. There, well, there are a lot. You know, there are a lot of people who 
very much like that that uh, effect that you're describing when they're in store and to them like flipping the page and seeing it stay right under your finger as you turn the page that's that's like the selling point for them that makes you buy an ipad right but it doesn't like but they'll never they'll, they'll never read if, a book on it anyway yeah well if you were to become an ebook reader like you know you had never read books on the thing but you decide you're going to give it a try and you find that you like the advantages of it, you'll very quickly find yourself sliding into the kindle world or the kindle ecosystem i imagine because you will start connecting with other heavy ebook readers and they will suggest to you that you oh you use an ibook so you should try kindle or you know just try the kindle reader and see what you if you like it and it's connected to your amazon account and you can put stuff on your you know so you'll get sucked into that ecosystem usually and i'm not a big fan of the kindle reader either i've i was a big fan of uh, e-reader which was the reader made by uh friends of mine back at the uh ebook company that i worked for years ago because it had all of the features that kindle has slowly grudgingly added when the kindle reader first came out for ios it's like this is their reader. It's got one eighth of the features. You know, of course, we're used to. This is a reader that had been developed over many, many years, and it had uh, a different fonts and it just customizable color schemes and different schemes for turning pages and all sorts of customization that we were all used to. You know, if you're an expert user, you want well, I want it to be tap left and right to turn pages. I want it to be tap up and bottom. I want it to be swipe to turn pages. I like this font. I have a custom color scheme. You know, I I have my sets of highlights and stuff, and I want those highlights to be preserved when I update the. You know, all the things that Amazon has slowly, gradually been adding. But the first Kindle app they came out was like, you know, barely enough to, okay, I can read books on it, I guess, but this doesn't have one eighth of the feature. So I, it took me a while to come over to Kindle, but you know, inevitably as they become the dominant content distribution, I buy Kindle eBooks. I read them in the Kindle reader and I suffer through the ways in which the Kindle reader is not up to the umpteen features that I liked in e-reader. Uh, but now I'm basically all in the Kindle reader. All right. So what ails Microsoft? We talked about that couple shows ago and got some follow-up on that uh michael anderson wrote something called in defense of microsoft and in parentheses or you cannot have your cake and eat it too and i that the link to that will be in the show notes it's a nice blog post and he brings up a, a good point that i missed in my whole discussion which was that microsoft's fear then and now uh may not have uh, in addition to i think it's in addition to being afraid that someone would eat their lunch that someone would take all their customers if they didn't serve them someone else would that the idea that microsoft's biggest competitor is not another company but previous versions of microsoft's own products so that uh the enterprise will not go to a different vendor they'll simply stick with whatever version of windows they have and that's bad for microsoft because microsoft wants recurring revenues they don't want people to use for example windows xp for five years running they want you know upgrade please upgrade you know so microsoft kind of painted itself into this corner by not providing an upgrade to xp for so long they had to sort of regroup and do all those big security patches to xp and then they put out vista which was not a big hit uh, so it wasn't until seven before microsoft had a had a good answer for why uh, enterprises should upgrade but that idea longer upgrade cycles that's something that microsoft also fears and you can understand why because it's just it's it's pinching off their uh, their revenue hose. Uh, and so the point in this article, one of the points in this article is that if Microsoft had focused on the consumers instead of the enterprise, uh, regardless of whether it was the right strategy, it would have come at a, a big cost. Because even if no one took, as I said, I think their hand was strong enough that no one else was going to take those customers. No one else could take them or wanted to take them. It would still hurt Microsoft because if they didn't serve the customers, the customers would be even less motivated to upgrade. Uh, so that was a good point. Uh, Longer upgrade cycles are actually worse to, to Microsoft than uh, someone else stealing their customers, which is uh, 
you know, I was trying to make that point by saying that they had such a strong hand, those customers weren't, weren't going to go somewhere else. But even if they did go to someone else, that would have been the other scenario I described, which is Microsoft really needs to slim down before it can rise from the ashes as a more consumer-focused company. Long upgrade cycles are the worst of both worlds because you have, you have most of the drawbacks of someone else tasting their customers, but none of the benefits. You're still on the hook. You're still like trying to get those customers. You're still tied into the enterprise and trying to serve them. You're just doing a bad job of it. So you don't get the freedom of saying, oh, well, someone else took those guys. We can go off and focus on something else, right? Uh, and I still think even with longer upgrade cycles, Microsoft still had a good hand there. And, you know, they can't stay on Windows 95 or 98 or NT. Or, they can't stay on that forever, right? They were always going to upgrade. You never had to, if no one was going to take them, yes, the upgrade cycles would be longer, but you should just, you know, you're going to get them eventually. And Windows 7, you know, you can have a big delay to shore up your existing operating system. Then you can have a complete flop like, like Vista. But eventually, you know, people upgrade to Windows 7. Uh, So Microsoft's continuing to commitment to, to IT has, has kind of prevented the big disruption that could have sped this process along. So they didn't leave those customers behind. Uh, they continued to serve them. They did suffer through some long upgrade cycles, but that was really of their own doing. No one else was interested in those customers, and no one else took them, right? Uh, but this, this the, the meta point I, I want to get to here is that this... Workers in IT, the trend is away from IT as gatekeepers and towards more independence, right? So even today, you have workers kind of want to use what they want to use. That, that, a lot of that started with the iPhone, where iPhone wasn't supported in the enterprise. You're supposed to use a BlackBerry, but people like the iPhone, it, you know, especially you know, rich top-level executives get that first iPhone for 600 bucks, and, and they right, say, right. well, these things are great. I, I want to use this at work. And the IT's department, no, you got to use BlackBerry. We are all, we are heavily tied into that. We have contracts, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, well, I'm getting the iPhone anyway. I'll try to figure it out how to get on the network. And if the exec is high enough, they say, I don't care what our policy is. I don't care what you tell the other employees to do. You're going to get my iPhone on the network because I like playing with iPhones, and it's a fun little toy, and I'm in charge. Uh, and you also see that with Macs is harder, but if, but if an executive wanted a Mac laptop or iPads and all that stuff, right? So regular computers like PCs used to have gatekeepers too. Used to have to bring your stack of punch cards. And no, I'm not actually old enough to have done this, but my father is to bring your stack of punch cards to the man with the pocket protector and the lab coat, and you hand him the cards, and then he takes your cards and feeds them into a machine, and then you come back and you get a printout of how your thing ran and if you had a bug or whatever, right? There, there was men that were like priests of the computer world and you would go to them with your offering and they controlled <laughs> the computer filled the room with you know false floors on it it was just it was not something that you had in front of you uh, and eventually a computer came to be on your desk now IT uh, corporate IT is still stuck in that gatekeeper mode the computer is on your desk but it's not your computer you know, IT controls it they want to control whether you're allowed to install any software on there they are pushing updates to you without you know you having any say in it they're running virus scanners on your stuff they're they're upgrading your operating system when they say it's time to upgrade. You know, it, you know, there is a continuum between a guy with a lab coat accepting punch cards and complete anarchy, right? But IT is way over into the gatekeeper side of the spectrum, especially as compared to how we use computing in our, in our daily life. So as computers become more like appliances, like a, like a toaster, you know, the post-PC era, or even the Mac was supposed to be like, oh, it's like an appliance. It's not like a regular PC. Things, I think, will loosen up. You know, like a corporations, corporate IT or just the, the corporations in general, they don't dictate 
for the most part, what kinds of like pens and paper you can use. You can just go to the Staples catalog and bring it to the office manager and say, hey, I need a couple of uh, black markers and a sparkly silver marker because I want to do some stuff on the whiteboard or whatever. And they'll order the stuff for you, right? The, the office manager in most cases is not the gatekeeper of pens and paper and say, no, sorry, you can't buy that paper. We only buy this kind of paper. And, and the reason that's different from IT is because like, whatever, it's a pen. It's a, it's a piece of paper. You know, you're not going to need any support. We, all, we, don't, we don't support that kind of pen in this company. You're going to take off the cap and you're going to use it, right? So the more something is like an appliance, like a pen or a paper or a dishwasher or something we assume that anybody can use and you don't need support and it's not this complicated thing, the more computers get like that, the less there'll be this centralized corporate control of things. Now, there will be still legal and financial implications, like the same reason that corporations generally don't want you to buy your own equipment and use it, because they want, you know, we'll, we will supply, we, we will purchase and own the equipment and it will be part of the company or whatever, but we'll let you pick whatever you want. So they'll buy the pens for you. They don't want you to go out and spend your own money on pens and then use them and then get in some lawsuit and say, well, I bought all the pens for this project, so I'm a, I don't know the legal implications of this. I'm not a lawyer. But in general, they want to be the ones to buy the supplies, but they, they're not going to dictate, right? Uh, so all this is to say is that regardless of whether someone took Microsoft's customers or their upgrade cycles got longer or whatever, Microsoft in the long term is going to need to change to focus on making the users happy and not the IT department happy because increasingly the users are going to be the ones making decisions about what gets used as computers become more like appliances. You know, iPads are certainly way more like appliances than PCs were. You, you don't need centralized control. Like, you know, the the app store is locked down and, you know, this, they can have a corporate app store that pushes their applications to the iPads and stuff like that. But it's much less of a, you know, I, I've got a virus on my iPad. I accidentally clicked on a link and now my iPad is really slow. And, you know, all those things that don't happen on iPads do happen on PCs. We're moving more towards the appliance model. So inevitably, this is the direction the trend is going. Microsoft will have to change its focus. It will have to change who it's making happy. And if it waits a really long time to do that, someone else can eat their lunch because Apple, for example, is already so so heavily focused for the past 10 years or whatever on making the user happy, not making the IT department happy. So it could be, the, you know, that's what I'm saying, Microsoft's going to get their lunch eaten because uh, they're going to say, oh, we're making the IT department happy. Eventually, you have to make the customer happy, and if you don't, Apple will, uh, and they're going to lose out. Uh, not because they didn't serve the IT customers, but it's because they did serve the IT customers. Like it's the opposite reason that someone's going to take all of their their sales away. They thought, well, if we don't if we don't do exactly what IT says, uh, we're going to lose that market. You're going to lose that market if you do exactly what IT says. Keith Selby had another point on here. Uh, he's complaining that uh, I'm saying that everyone should be like Apple. Uh, I'll read a couple of short passages from his email. Uh, to look at Microsoft and say they should be more like Apple is a little short sighted and not very creative. Uh, they, meaning Microsoft, has never been an idea company. They've never been innovative. They serve the corporate sector and are good at that. Would you suggest that IBM or Oracle should be more like Apple? And mm. Apple is unique. And by that comparison, why don't you look at nearly every company out there and say they should be more like Apple? This is a tendency, you know, because we like Apple and we say, like, why, why can't the company that makes my tires be more like Apple? Why can't my car company be more like Apple? Blah, blah, blah. Uh, but it's not just sort of fanboyism and saying, I like Apple, I don't like this company, therefore this company should be more like Apple. In the specific case of Microsoft, that trend in IT away from centralized control is that's an actual factor in the potential future success of Microsoft. And th there's a reason they have, they should be more consumer focused, not just because just because Apple is more consumer focused, but that's that's the way the wind is blowing, right? So it's not an arbitrary Microsoft should be like Apple. There are you know 
there's reasons uh, for that in this specific case. As for IBM and Oracle and companies that, you know, Oracle is just mostly serving the enterprise. Individual customers are not choosing to use Oracle and have all their column names in all caps with 32 character limits. Or, you know, so, Oracle, <laughs> Oracle is a very uh, enterprise-focused company. But any of these companies, there's always something you can learn from a, another successful company. Uh, so I wouldn't say that IBM or Oracle should be just like Apple, just as I wouldn't say Microsoft should be just like Apple. But the, the lessons of Apple's success should be taken and incorporated into the way you do business. And the closer your business is to Apple's, I would say Microsoft's business is much closer to Apple's than Oracle's is, for example, the more lessons you should take from Apple. I think that's it for the what ails Microsoft follow-up. That's, I mean, that was a, that was a very controversial show. That divided I divided the audience. I don't know. I got it. Did it, no, it really I, did. I thought the feedback was pretty fair. Like the the people who disagreed or thought I missed points were mostly like, for example, the point about long operate. That was a point that I missed. So that was valid, but I don't think there was a lot of really negative feedback. It was just kind of a, mostly what I saw was a lot of people saying, "Here's what else is wrong with Microsoft." Mm-hmm. A lot of people had their own, uh, uh, you know. John listed what he thought was wrong with Microsoft and what they did wrong. I think they did this wrong. And I think that and a lot of times they were right. Yeah, you're right. All the things you listed, they also did wrong. Uh, the one I chose to talk about was uh, a particular moment in time when I think they could have done things differently. And, and it was a long time ago and not fairly recently. So people did like to vent about Microsoft and what they dislike about it. Now, I have a question. I, I know you probably have an order for your follow up and you're probably, you know, there's an arc and a story. Um, but I, I, there was an email that we got that I wanted to read to you. Um, this may even be part of your follow-up. Why don't you tell me the topic so I can tell you whether I'm actually going to cover it. Is it is the TiVo question. Jay, I don't remember this okay, one. Okay, so, it. well, before, before we do, let's do our first sponsor, uh, Smile Software. I love these guys. You know, you know these guys. They do PDF Pen. They do Text Expander. Uh, today we're talking about PDF Pen, though. It's, it's, it, I love this app. I've been talking about it all week. It is the application to use when you have to do something other than just view a PDF. That's how I think of it. Somebody sent you something and you need to sign it. This lets you do that. Somebody sent you something and you need to sign it and modify it. Or maybe you want to go paperless and you want to OCR something. Or maybe you just got a fax that you want to OCR. It doesn't matter. This is the the multi-tool for PDFs. You can add signatures. You can uh, modify the PDFs without having to print and scan and fax and all that garbage. It's, uh, it's so old school. Now, if you go to the pro version, you can even create cross-platform PDF forms. And you can do other cool things like build a table of contents for longer PDFs. You can merge. You can do all this. It's great stuff. So how do you do this? You, you go to smilesoftware.com slash hypercritical. You got that smilesoftware.com slash hypercritical. You can download the fully functional demo. They're not the type that, oh, well, you can't do this. You can't do that. No, you can do that. And uh, then you, you figure out if it's going to work for you. It will, but you can go try it out. Now, it's normally $59.95 or $99.95 for Pro, and I recommend the Pro. But hypercritical listeners get 20% off. You go to smilesoftware.com slash hypercritical, or you can just use the coupon code hypercritical11. The number 11. And uh, thanks very much to Smile Software for sponsoring this show in 5x5. You know, I, I, I don't know how old PDF Pen is. I think it's a pretty old application because I remember just a long time ago, probably years, 
where I'd, I'd have a PDF and it would be like that type of thing where you have to put a signature on it or something like that. And I don't have a commercial version of Acrobat and Preview couldn't do this, anything about this back then. And so you do a Google search for like Mac OS X, modify PDF. You know, you're just trying to figure, find some app to you just you just want to get something done, like fax in some stupid thing that they sent you as a PDF that you have to sign and print and put. And you don't want to use a real fax machine. Right? So I would always come up with PDF pen and then I would download it. I don't know if they had a time limited demo or a feature limited demo or or I would just, you know, I, I kept coming back to PDF pen every time I needed to do this. And I always be like, I just want to do this one thing. I don't want to buy this application. Right. Uh, but just eventually you use it like the third time that happens, you're like, look, this is obviously an application I need for my work and I should just buy this thing. Uh, so I would, I would encourage people to not look at it as if you encounter the application in that context, you will keep saying, oh, I don't think I should buy it. But that's eventually you should buy the thing. Once the third or fourth time this application saves your bacon, you should start to realize if I want this application to still be around, I should pay them money for it. <laughs> Otherwise, the next time I want this application to be there, I say, well, sorry, we can't sell PDF <laughs> anymore. Or, or we can only sell to the enterprise and it's $3,000 for a copy of PDF. <laughs> uh. you, you, this application has uses and when you need it, you will know you need it and you should buy it because it's great. There you go. There you go. Uh, Someone on Twitter says that his middle name is John, J-O-N, and it's not short for anything. Ah, but that's a middle name. They screw around with those. Well, the, the point with names, I think, is that your parents can name you whatever the heck they want. Yeah. So whatever rules there are historically for what J-O-H-N and J-O-N is short for and stuff like that, there is a historical precedent and tradition, but all bets are off with names. People can do whatever the heck they want. Yeah, no, that's very well said. All right, so you had some TiVo thing you want to talk about. Well, it, it's it's just an interesting topic, and I, I feel like I saw more emails than just this one. Uh, and, and I think there were people maybe even in the chat room discussing this over the last few weeks. This email is from uh, Chris Corner, and uh, he, he asks, why doesn't Apple buy TiVo? I can imagine all kinds of great outcomes from that. What is holding them back from what appears to be a no-brainer acquisition? Now, I know that uh, John Gruber mentioned on the last talk show, episode number 70, I believe, uh, he, he, he was talking about what the Apple TV could become and said if Apple wanted to create a DVR, in other words, if uh, they were going to make a television that had DVR functionality integrated into it, he would say, well, then they would just buy TiVo. And so I'm not sure if Chris is referring to that, uh, but he, he did direct this at you. Uh, so, it, you know, it's, it's something I've heard other people ask and mention, why wouldn't Apple just buy TiVo and then they could kind of step in and own that space? We're going to run long today, you know, so I hope you're prepared for that. Well, I think that that's all right uh, because we had no... Yes. You know, we had no show last week uh, for a variety of reasons, including the fact that you had no voice and, yeah. you know, but that we we owe it, I think, to listeners to go a little All right. bit long. All right. As long We're as only prepared, 30 so. minutes in, though. I know. I'm just, yeah, I'm just giving, getting you prepared. So on the TiVo thing, well, first, uh, as people in the chat room are moaning about, yes, we have discussed this before. Uh, and as far as Apple's concerned, when Steve Jobs was at the helm, uh, he basically said in public, we don't want to do anything like TiVo. TiVo was a cautionary tale. Thing. Yeah, but he look, also look said happened. he also said nobody wants to read. You know, the blah, I know, blah, I know. Blah. but like, but he was more specific than just saying that a D, he didn't say that a DVR is a dumb thing to have. Like, kind of like no one wants to watch a video on a little handheld, right? What he said was that 
there's no way to make money doing it, which is a different uh, thing. It's not, it's not saying that customers wouldn't like this product. It's saying that it sounded like what he was saying was that we've looked into to creating something like this because we agree that a device like this has value to consumers, but there's just no, there's no go-to-market strategy, as he said, because of the cable companies and uh, how the box is supposed to be subsidized and it just it, many different reasons why they didn't think they could make a product like that. And what he basically said was that Apple was not interested in making a product like that until it could figure out the go-to-market strategy. And I don't think enough has changed in the world of television that Apple has a a better way to make money than they did in 2008 or whatever he said this. All right. So number one, why Apple doesn't buy TiVo is that Apple does not want to make a DVR. Apple doesn't want to make a box. It doesn't want to make the box that I always wanted them to make, which is this omnivorous box that it consumes all your input, provides a unified, basically what Google TV says it, it's supposed to be. But if Apple made it, it would actually work and be user friendly and, right. you know, and not just this horrible thing that loses millions of dollars for other companies like the first Google TV did, you know, but Apple just doesn't want to make those. So that's reason number one why they don't buy TiVo. If that ever changes, say they, Apple decides, yes, we do want to make something like TiVo Mix, which I don't think will ever happen. I think they want to leapfrog that whole thing and just get out of that, you know, not be consuming content through a cable card, not being consuming network television and recording it and time shifting it. That's like a hack. But I, don't think, I think they want to leapfrog that to go to something else. All right? But if they decided they did want to make a DVR, the only reason they would have to buy TiVo is for the customers and for the patents. Because their software and hardware is crap. Uh, even though it's still the best, I still think it's the best available out there. Apple, it, I think Apple's crew could whip up an iOS-based TiVo-like interface for a television. That the only thing stopping them from doing a massively better job than TiVo does in terms of performance, features, ease of use, everything, is patents that TiVo might hold on stuff like that. Uh, the hardware, forget it, Apple has so much more experience making better, faster, good performing, small. Like, look, look at the size of the Apple TV box compared to the size of the TiVo box. And, you know, the, TiVo has no expertise there that Apple wants. The people, there might be good people at TiVo who have experience in this area and they would probably make good Apple employees. But I think uh, Apple, I mean, that, that actually, I, I'm going to say the, the customers, the patents, and maybe the employees, because it is really hard to get good employees uh, with experience in uh, technology. Although I think TiVo's engineers probably have little or no experience with Apple's technology stack. Maybe there would be some good ones there that you would get them up to speed. Uh, but it's not like they would buy TiVo and then put an Apple logo on TiVo's interface and ship a product. That's not what Apple does. Right. You know, I mean, at least they don't do that with hardware products anyway. With software, like they'll buy Logic and sort of massage it and put out Logic. You know, you know what I mean? But even in those cases, they're buying a product that I, I don't remember. Did Logic look Apple-like before Apple bought it? You're mm, supposed to know. I'm, this, I'm trying to. Well, I didn't use Logic back then. I used Pro Tools. Mm. But I yeah. would, I would say, I would say no. I would say that uh, just based on what they've done when you know they created this strange Pro app look, they have their their Pro look for things that that they changed. So I, I'm going to guess they probably didn't. Probably didn't. But who knows? I mean, same thing with like Shake and other things they acquired from elsewhere. Uh, the software, they're more inclined to slap a coat of paint on and the first version is just kind of like the old version, but maybe there's no Windows version and it looks kind of aptly. But for hardware and software combos like a device, I, I just don't see that happening. So, so yeah, so that's why I don't think they're going to buy TiVo and I don't really think there's any reason for them to buy TiVo except for reasons that have nothing to do with the quality of the TiVo product and everything to do with our stupid legal system. 
and perhaps possibly to do with the difficulty of finding talent on the West Coast uh, these days because of competitors. So my next topic, which I think you will enjoy, uh, this is going way back maybe three shows ago on the Anako Almanac, mm. four shows ago. Okay. And the Anako show, he was talking about the People versus George Lucas. Yes. Which uh, I also saw, I think I mentioned that show many, many episodes ago that I, was, I wanted to see it and I couldn't, I couldn't see it because it was only showing in, in film festivals and it wasn't right. available online mm-hmm. and you couldn't get it on Netflix and you couldn't buy a DVD and it was just not available. Well, finally, it is available. I think I, how did I see it? I think I got it on Netflix. Uh, uh, maybe disc only. Uh, I don't know if it's streaming yet, but I did watch it. Uh, and, and as I uh, mentioned when we were discussing this this movie with uh, some other people, that the title, The People vs. George Lucas, if you tell somebody, uh, you should see this documentary called The People vs. George Lucas, if you have to explain to them what that movie is about, the movie is not for them. Mm. Because the title should be self-explanatory. And the people who are going to like this movie the title will be self-explanatory. If people hear that title and have no idea what the heck a documentary with that title could be about, they probably shouldn't watch it. Uh, so, as Andy discussed, the, the movie is about people's experience with Star Wars and how they, they fans became increasingly at odds with the creative decisions made by George Lucas and that whole grudge match about the prequels and stuff, blah, blah, blah. So, Andy, on his show, I, sh- I shouldn't have waited so long before discussing this, but I can't remember every detail of what he said, but one of the points he was making is sort of against the people who are complaining that George Lucas changed Star Wars in any way. Uh, I don't want to pin down exactly what he said or try to quote him or do my imitation of Andy Nako's voice because I really don't remember his specific point. So I will move on to the more the more general, the, the idea that uh, uh, the, the fanboy idea that, that Star Wars should not be changed at all and anything Lucas does is bad. And he has no, the, the most extreme, he has no right to change that, uh, you know, those kind of complaints. Uh, specifically, I think Andy did bring this up. Uh, a lot of people quote the 1988 uh, address of Congress by George Lucas, where he was complaining about, uh, I don't know if it was uh, Turnerization of movies, Ted Turner colorizing old movies, or it was just in general uh, protections or uh, artist protections for their works against uh, future modifications. So George Lucas gave this big speech in Congress and many people who don't like what George Lucas did to the Star Wars movies will quote this speech to show how hypocritical George Lucas is or perhaps not, not hypocritical, perhaps like here's what George Lucas says he used to think, but here's what he actually has done later in his life. Obviously he's changed old George Lucas wouldn't like new George Lucas, that type of thing. Uh, and I believe Andy kind of poo pooed that as well saying that it's, it's not, you know, uh, that there's no inconsistency that what George Lucas was arguing for to Congress in 1998 was an artist's right to not have his work modified by somebody else. But that Lucas is the creator of this work. And, and I, Andy did, I remember this part, Andy did bring up people will say, well, Lucas didn't write or direct uh, Empire Strikes Back, so how can you say it's his? But really, he's the creator of Star Wars, as Andy pointed out. You know, there, there was a time before Star Wars, and then he made it. You know, it wouldn't exist without him. He's the creator. He should have artistic control over his work, even if he wasn't the one who actually sat in the director's chair for Empire, who actually wrote every word of the script or whatever. Uh, and so that, it, that there's no inconsistency with the speech that uh, he had. He is the artist, and he maintains artistic control, and that's what he was arguing for. He was arguing against other people uh, modifying an artist's work. Uh, and altering that artistic vision. But when the artist himself does it, it's perfectly within the bounds of what he was complaining about. Uh, so after hearing all this, most of the things that Andy said, I agreed with. 
the main the, the main thing I disagreed with was that all these things therefore invalidate the anger uh, that people have against what George Lucas has done to Star Wars because I think he missed the thing that I'm most upset about. Maybe there are, are people who are upset about the things he was talking about, but the thing that I'm upset about was not addressed by Andy, and I'd like to address that now <laughs> by quoting, yes, from the 1988 speech of George Lucas to Congress. Uh, I'll read a couple passages here. <laughs> This is George Lucas in 1988. The destruction of our film heritage, which is the focus of concern today, is only the tip of the iceberg. American law does not protect our painters, sculptors, recording artists, authors, or filmmakers from having their life work distorted and their reputation ruined. So this is getting back to what I was saying. He, he doesn't, you know, the artist can change his work, but say the artist produces something and someone else changes it, but his name is still attached to it. He wouldn't want his reputation ruined by someone else making some crappy version of Star Wars. But it's still, you know, it's, got, it's associated with George Lucas. He's the creator of Star Wars, right? So that's, that's that point I was getting at there. Uh, later on, a copyright is held in trust by its owner until it ultimately reverts to the public domain. American works of art belong to the American public. They are part of our cultural history. So this is a point I've made several times about Star Wars and it was made in The People versus George Lucas. Uh, that a work of art belongs to the artist, but then it... it eventually reverts to the public, but when he was he had a naive view of copyright law, the idea that copyright would ever actually expire because copyright as the is in the Constitution, some part of our uh, maybe it's an amendment or maybe it's just the copyright law says for a limited time, right? So copyright is for a limited time. I forget what it is. Does anyone in the chat room know what the term of copyright now is? I seventy five years, ninety seven. I think uh, it is uh looking at the Wikipedia page, which is always right, and to find out how many uh how many years it is, but let's see if the chat room can beat me to it. 75, they're guessing. People death guessing. death plus 70 people. Yeah, know, right? after the death of the artist plus some number of years or whatever. Uh, the the Sunny, Boat, Sunny Bono copyright extension. Oh, copyright is now life plus 90, Horatio B says in the net room. Uh, at any rate, so in the copyright law of the United States, it says for a limited time. And there right. was this big case several years ago where uh, maybe it was Lawrence Lessig who argued this, but anyway, he was always associated with this fight where I think it went all the way to the Supreme Court and they said, it's supposed to be for a limited time, but every time the limit comes up on Mickey Mouse, basically, right, they extend it. So if they keep extending it, it's not really limited. Uh, and the Supreme you'd, al- Court, you'd almost argue it's not limited at all. Yeah. So, so Supreme Court, uh, true to form, being pig-headed literalist idiots, uh, many times they are, said, "Well, if they said limited, and there's a limit. It's limited. You lose your case." You know, not seeing that, like, great, we, they found the loophole. All we got to do is extend it by ten years every time the limit comes up on Mickey Mouse. And it will be perpetual copyright, even though the term is technically limited. We just keep changing the limit every time we hit the limit. Uh, and why Mickey Mouse? Because, you know, Mickey Mouse is owned by Disney, which is a big company, and they have a lot of lobbyists and money and pay for political campaigns, and our political system is entirely corrupt and blah, blah, blah. Right? So that's perpetual copyright. But in theory, the, the, the spirit of the law, if not the letter, is that, co- that ownership is supposed to revert to the public. Right? Uh, so here's a, another passage from George talking to Congress. People who alter or destroy works of art and our cultural heritage for profit or as an exercise of power are barbarians. And if the laws of the United States continue to condone this behavior, history would surely classify us as a barbaric society. Uh, so he's, he's getting all high and mighty on we just can't let people be, you know, defacing uh, an artist's work, right? Uh, now we start getting uh, closer, to, closer to the metal in, uh, in Merlin Mann parlance of his misinterpretation of my discussion of uh, <laughs> Copeland 2010. Okay. It will soon be possible to create new original, in scare quotes, negative 
he means a, ne- a film negative, kids, with whatever changes or alterations the copyright holder of the moment desires. The copyright holders so far have not been completely diligent in preserving the original negatives of films they control. In order to re- reconstruct old negatives, many archivists have had to go to Eastern Bloc countries where American films have been better preserved. So what he's complaining about here is that even though an artist creates a work, the artist may not be the copyright holder because the studio owns it or whatever. Right. And those those copyright holders, although within the letter of the law to be able to change it because they are the copyright holders, they are not the original artists. So they may alter a work to make money or whatever and not be concerned about preserving the original work. And he's saying how it, uh, you know people reconstructing negatives of old movies have had to go to other countries where they just found like a negative in a can somewhere in the back of some you know theater in Yugoslavia. This is the only you know unaltered copy of this thing, so we need to we need to preserve it. Lucas again. In the future, it will become even easier for old negatives to become lost and and be replaced in scare quotes again by new altered negatives. This would be a great loss to our society. Our cultural history must not be allowed to be rewritten. Uh, later on, he says the public's interest is ultimate ultimately dominant over all other interests. So what he's saying is that. Regardless of whether the copyright holder feels it has the right to do these alterations, the public's interest in the original version of this is dominant over all other interests. Uh, And here's here's a a summation of what he said to Congress uh, talking to the AP. I'm very concerned about our national heritage, and I'm very concerned that the films that I watched when I was young and the films that I watched throughout my life are preserved so that my children can see them. This, everything I've read, has gotten increasingly to the heart of my objection to what George Lucas has done to Star Wars, and I think the the core objection of the non-fanboy, right-thinking people. And it's this, that if you create a work of art, you and you are the copyright holder and the artist, you have some responsibility until the rights of that thing turn over to the public to preserve that work as it existed. This does not mean that you can't make derivative works. You want to make special editions. You want to recast the entire movie with puppets. You want to <laughs> dub over it with, with gangster rap. Whatever you want to do is fine. But the original thing that you made, that stops becoming yours and becomes the culture's almost as soon as it comes out and becomes just a cultural phenomenon. Star Wars was a cultural phenomenon in 1978. You know, it comes out in 77. 78, it's a cultural phenomenon. George Lucas has the right to make a million different versions of Star Wars, changing everything about it, making Greedo shirt first, you know, uh, second, third, fourth, whatever he wants to do. But the one that he released in 1977, culturally speaking, that's no longer his. He, he owns it and can make, get, make money from it and derive works from it and do whatever he wants. But the main argument of, in the people versus George Lucas who don't like what Lucas has done is that do whatever you want. We want the 1977 version. The OVA right? version. We we want... No, I, did, I disagree with that whole description of anime, but I don't want to get into that. Uh, <laughs> we, we want... The, the the original version, it happened. It was released. And it's it's your responsibility as the artist, to, your responsibility to the culture, to preserve that. Which means, do not destroy all negatives of the original 1977 Star Wars. Do not claim, as Lucas has it, oh, the original negative is gone. Uh, we can't get that back. It's just a special edition. There's no history eraser button. This is the big thing they'll hate Lucas for. Yeah, we hate him that he made crappy Star Wars movies later. The prequels are crappy movies, and it was a shame, right? But the main thing is, like, you know, you have to keep uh, that old stuff that you made. That existed. That happened. And that's what we want to see. And it needs to be preserved. Now, someone could say, well, so he's not going out there and destroying all the negatives, right? Despite his claims that there's no copy of the original negatives. He will actually... I remember some theaters would find like an old negative of the original Star Wars and try to show it, and Lucas doesn't like that and would try to stop them from showing it. That's 
that's kind of the the stuff that I'm getting into where people hate him, right? But the the other responsibility I think is that old movies like this, like say movies that were shot in the, in the 20s or whatever that are classics, right? And the artists are long dead and stuff like that, but someone still owns them. It's the responsibility of the people who own those things to bring that content to preserve it. In the same way like old books would be preserved in a library and put into like a, you know, a nitrogen filled tank so they don't rot or whatever. Uh, but just to preserve the words, you know, it, it transcribe them into another form. It's it's the owners and the artists and everyone involved in that's responsibility to the culture to preserve that content in the best way possible. And in the case of film, that means at a certain point, like those negatives are going to go bad. Negatives rest a really long time, depending on the, the film stock. And there was a bad batch of film stock that uh, the, the process I think used in maybe it was the seventies was not great. So actually some of the films there are worse off than films that were made in the twenties or thirties, right? At some point you have to ch- scan that negative, get it in digital form, preserve it. And that this is going a bit beyond the letter of the law, but I think culturally speaking, it's your responsibility if you are the guy who made and owns and controls Star Wars to ensure that there is now a pristine, digital, non-decaying version of the original 1977 Star Wars as it released. Is it your responsibility to, you know, make sure that's available for sale at reasonable prices or something? No, you know, you can sit on that. Or you can sell it for a thousand bucks, or you know, but it's your responsibility to preserve it, right? Well, someone in the chat room thinks I'm off on this, and it's not Lucas's responsibility solely to preserve it, but the copyright support should allow others to do it as well. He's going farther than I have in saying that uh, having him have complete control of this movie is not really fair, and that uh, it should be a, someone else who has this concern should be able to preserve that content, even though they're not the owners, all right. Uh, and Aaron Pressman says the Library of Congress is doing this, right? But the the main thing we're so pissed off about Lucas is that he wants to... He, everything he says and does makes us think that he wants to pretend that that stuff never happened. Mm. That, no, you can't show the original stars if you, if you want to. That stuff doesn't exist. And all of his statements, many of which have been... Uh, maybe people think they are, are bogus, saying, actually, the original negative doesn't even exist anymore. Which, if true, would just be a complete abdication of artistic and cultural responsibility to say... I, yes, I physically damaged the only one actual original negative Star Wars and you can never reconstruct it. I think that's not true. I think it could be done. But at a certain point, if we, you know, if, if we wait until 90 years after Lucas is dead, maybe all the negatives will be gone then and he will have succeeded in making it seem like those original Star Wars versions never existed. Mm. This is the core complaint. And I think that core complaint is well-voiced by George Lucas in 1988. Not that he shouldn't be allowed to make special editions, not that altering any of these movies in any way is sacrilege and all that other stuff, simply that the original versions are part of history and should be preserved, and he's not doing that. And I, and I, I, don't, know, I don't know if Andy would disagree with that because he didn't address it, but m- maybe he would agree and say, but that's not what I hear most people complaining about, most people complaining that he made a version that Greedo shoots first, right? Mm-hmm. And I guess that's kind of true, but like at the root, all those people, their whining would be just kind of like they'd get over it. It's kind of like the default tonight book earlier we talked about earlier in the episode, right? You don't like the stupid book thing. As soon as you find the feature to turn it off, you stop complaining about it. If nobody liked the special editions and they say, well, I'll just buy the Blu-ray version of the originals or I'll just get the digital copy of the original or whatever it is that you stop complaining. You're like, fine, it's not for me. I just want to see the ones that I saw when I was a kid. Other people like the other ones, let them decide, whatever. As long as you could get the originals, or as long as we had, at the very least, if we had faith that the originals 
would would be there for us someday. Like that they that they were there was a good steward taking care of the originals, right? The same way that people would be upset if like the original Gone with the Wind negative is gone and the only one that was left was the one that had CG added, right? People would be upset by that. People assume that someone is taking care of Gone with the Wind. That someone is making sure that our kids will be able to see or our grandchildren will be able to see Gone with the Wind in the version that was originally released into theaters, regardless of how many remakes or derivative versions exist, right? And we just take that for granted. Uh, but with Star Wars, many people who highly prize those versions of the movies aren't sure that's happening and are scared that actually the opposite is happening. That George Lucas is doing everything in his power to make those versions disappear. Uh, despite the fact that, like, for example, he released, like, oh, here's the theatrical releases as a hidden extra heavily compressed on the DVD version of Star Wars, which he did do. That's not what we want. We want it to be preserved with the same love and attention that he seems to be preserving like the prequels, for example, you know, as they were originally released. It just, it seems, it seems weird because when you think about the way that most, I probably shouldn't say that because I've never made a movie, but you would think the way that most uh, people who are out there making movies is that they're they're so focused on making the movie right now that they're not necessarily thinking, well, when this becomes a huge cult phenomenon uh, in, in 20, 30 years from now, we'll have to make sure that everything we're doing is, is preserved. I, I mean, I understand what you're saying. I understand what Andy was saying. I think that it seems like the nicest thing that somebody could do in this situation uh, as a as a movie director, producer, whatever it is, would be to say, "We felt there were some things wrong. Here's an updated version. Yeah, you can you can still get this older version. We're not gonna we're not gonna update it anymore. It's the same thing that happens like this uh, this app that uh, that I have here. If if, if I don't want to pay for the upgraded version, the the manufacturer, the, the guy who makes these apps, I won't name the app. He's nice enough to say, "Well, you can still you paid for the old version. You can have version three. You can have version three up to the very last point release. We're not going to be doing any updates to it anymore. If there are bugs, then then you you got to upgrade to version four. That that will fix those bugs. But we've supported version three now for a couple of years, and uh, you you bought it, you've used it, you can continue to use it forever. We will not update it anymore. We're going to be updating version four. So come on and download version four. And you know what? For you, special upgrade price. You know, apps are kind of a weird example, and that's actually a whole other show's worth of topics. Uh, because, like, so say someone wants to see, uh, uh, you know, Mosaic, the original version of Mosaic that ran on the Mac. You can find a copy of Mosaic. The problem, the ma- you know, you can find those binaries. The main problem is like, all right, so how do I run it? All right, so say you want to use the old version of some app on your iPhone forever. Well, if you never upgrade your iPhone, you can do that, but eventually your iPhone's going to break, and the new versions, eventually that app's not going to run on the new version of the operating system. We don't have, finding a way to preserve pieces of software that may be equally part of the culture, like the first version of Netscape or whatever, uh, or, you know, the first version of the Mac operating system. We haven't really got that figured out yet. I'm sure it has to, eventually it'll be, you know, VMware and stuff in the many generations from now. The idea that there's currently no way, no officially Apple-sanctioned way to run old versions of its operating system, like the original system version, is kind of a crime. And we hadn't yet learned how to preserve that stuff. But for for audiovisual medium, the the the, the media is uh, the medium is old enough that we we have that kind of down. We understand like to preserve a movie, preserving the film stock. Yes, that's fine. But really, what we want to preserve are the images there. Uh, so 
we have ways of, you know, all right, the negative is not going to last forever. You either transfer it to a new negative, but that's lossy. What we've learned is you have to make a digital scan of it, right? Same thing with audio recordings. It was originally on a wax cylinder. Well, that wax cylinder is not going to last forever. If you want to preserve that, you got to make it digital. We have the audio and the video stuff kind of figured out. And yes, it's not quite the same because it's not, you don't get the, the you know, it's not the same frames per second. You don't get the, the, the shake of it going through the shutter. And yeah, we do our best to preserve it. I think we have a much stronger handle on how to preserve audio and video than we do on how to preserve applications. So that's why I think the, the, the counterexample of like, well, no one's taken away your Laserdisc version, uh, you know, so why don't you just watch that forever? Uh, well, my Laserdisc player broke. Well, a tough luck, you know, it's not their responsibility to make it. I'm saying, yes, it is their responsibility to, to somehow preserve that movie into the future. Their responsibility doesn't end by saying, well, well, you know, you got the Laserdisc, you got the VHS tape, our work is done. It's not our responsibility to, to move that along. Now, the, another counterexample is like, so what if you make a blog post and then you, you shut down your blog? Or you make right. a blog post and then 10 minutes later and you change a word in it. Uh, well, you never preserved the original version of that showing your typo or before you made your correction. Right? The responsibility to preserve in perpetuity uh, the original version of something without alteration scales with the cultural significance of that thing. My blog post, and then I shut down my blog, you know, it was an artistic work and I wrote a, I wrote a short story there and I just shut it down and no one had that, right. you know, and archive.org didn't catch it. Is my, my responsibility for that is almost nothing compared to the responsibility of preserving Star Wars or Gone with the Wind, right? It's not an absolute rule that you apply to everything and then, you know, you know it shows that you're inconsistent hypocrite because you think it's okay for you to alter your blog post. Star Wars is not my blog post, you know. We have to, you have to use your brain when evaluating uh, things like this. And, and Star Wars is not even like an edge case, you know. <laughs> it's not an obscure thing. It's not some, uh, you know, it's not something that we don't know how to preserve well like applications, uh, and, and even I think applications are kind of up for grabs or games, you know, getting with our applications art. People are, like to talk about the our video games art stuff, you know, with, with uh, the whole Roger Ebert thing, mm-hmm. which I don't want to get into in this show. Uh, and then the gamers, of course, say yes. And then other people say no. How about applications? You brought them up. Are applications art? Do they need to be preserved as part of our cultural heritage? I think they do. Uh, I think we just don't know. <laughs> we don't know how to do it. We haven't figured out the best way to do that yet. No, which which ones would be? I mean, who's going to judge that? Obviously, you, you you know, you say Star Wars and Gone with the Wind. Well, it, what about that little menu uh, menu bar thing that lets you toggle Bluetooth? I mean, is does that need to be preserved forever? Yeah, I mean, it it gets you know when you're in a gray area, it's difficult. I don't think Star Wars is in a gray area, and I would say, for example like Netscape 1.0 or some, some early web browser is probably also not in a gray area because the web browser, how about the fir- very first? But that, uh, but yeah, but you're getting, it, this gets weird because then you'd need to say, well, we need to also preserve the I know the computer system systems. That it was made and, on, yeah. What about the hardware and you're not using it the way it was used. Right. And yeah. It's all the same concerns. It's just much worse for applications because we don't, I don't think people even agree that they're worth preserving or that they're art. Right. Let alone once, even if we came to consensus on that, then what do you do to preserve them? How do, we don't have a handle on that. You know, we need uh, emulation. Do we need to keep the hardware running forever? It's like saying the only way to preserve Star Wars is to preserve forever the original projector it was it was shown on. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like the special seventies projector because it's not the same. <laughs> like, well, right. it's not the same using the original web browser unless you yeah, like it. Have like it. It, technically having it on DVD or Blu-ray, that's not really the way that it was. So right. that you're not really right. preserving. You're not it. using you're not using an X cube when you use the original web browser written <laughs> that's, by Tim. That's right. Bernstein. And you're using that little rectangular mouse with the two buttons is different than using it in 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 a, a virtual machine on your you know. So we all have you know with film. 
I think we've kind of agreed that preserving the projector is not that important, especially since it was projected in so many different ways. And right. I think we've mostly agreed that preserving the negative for that film-like quality, it, some sort of film projector should be preserved so that later, you know, people can say this is what film projectors are like, just like we kind of preserve or recreate butter churns to say this is how they used to make butter, right? That should be preserved as a separate thing, but I think we've agreed that if they, if we have a pristine digital copy of Gone with the Wind and we did, made our best effort to get every ounce of information out of that negative before they all disintegrated, they were okay, and we consider that a, a dutiful preservation of the original Gone with the Wind, right? Uh, KJ Healy in the chat room brings up uh, a, a point about how artists themselves tend to not want to look back at their, at their old work. Right. right? They, want to, they want to look forward. And one of his points is that Da Vinci painted his masterpiece on a wet wall. Uh, you know, they're, artists, artists themselves are not always particularly inclined to say, what I've done here must be preserved for the ages. They just want to move on. And they, they want to, you know, it's part of being an artist. You, you don't want to dwell on your old work. You want to go and make new work. Steve Jobs himself has said many things to that effect. You just got to look forward, right? Uh, so that's an argument for another point that uh, my friend always likes to bring up, that artists themselves are not always the best stewards of their own material. And that, that gets back to my point about how the uh, eventual and Lucas's point that, uh, quoting from him again, ult, uh, the public's interest is ultimately dominant over all other interests, which argues for the public to be the steward of things that are culturally significant and not the artist. Because the artist may be like, I never want to look at that again. I'm moving on as an artist, which is good. That's what artists should do. But that means the artist should not be the sole one who has the right to preserve this thing because they will be the worst, perhaps the worst possible stewards of this material, you know? And I think. Lucas has proved it as being a horrible, horrible stu- steward of the, the culturally significant Star Wars movies. Not because he made altered versions of them, because, but because he seems to have an antipathy towards the original versions. He only wants the new versions to exist, which may be the correct thing in terms of uh, being an artist. It would be much more convincing if the new things were actually better, but they're not. But that's all a separate issue. But it does argue for uh, him not being the steward of this uh, mm-hmm content and it argues against in a million other different ways the whole perpetual copyright thing mm-hmm. uh, and just our entire system of uh, ownership and which all goes all the way back to political corruption and how the people with the money make the rules and blah 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 <laughs> all right well let's do a second uh second and final sponsor it's squarespace.com secret behind exceptional websites i love these guys i'm moving a ton of my stuff over there uh, not five by five because it's a uh, really detailed people always say oh you're moving five. Not moving that, but I'm, I'm, I'm in the process of moving everything else that I've done for decades over to, uh, to Squarespace. This is, what is Squarespace? It's a fully hosted, completely managed environment for creating a beautiful website in a matter of minutes. You manage it from an interface that's uh, it's like nothing else out there. They give you full control over your content and site customization. You can build a website, you can create a blog, and it's really fast and really easy. And if you're moving from something like WordPress or movable type, uh, it, they just import it and it just works. It's kind of amazing. Uh, or if you're like me and you built a custom thing, then you just export it as WordPress or movable type and it imports it straight away. They also built in powerful analytics tools. They've got really cool stuff if you do photo galleries because they've got their own cool light box integration and hover effects. I mean, everything is in there. Real-time stats. It, 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 it's, it's really amazing. It's great. It's really, really great. And it's good for geeks who like to get in there and tweak and do their own CSS and HTML. And it's great for people who have absolutely no interest in that. It it does whatever you want. It goes both ways. That could be their slogan. 
uh, giving that to them for free. You can try it for free, speaking of free, for, for two weeks, 14 days. Uh, you don't have to give them a credit card. You don't have to commit to anything. And how do you do that? You go to squarespace.com slash 5 by 5 and uh, you use, uh, there's a coupon code Dan sent me. And I think, uh, I think it's Dan sent me 11 for 2011, or maybe Dan sent me 12 since we're in December. Try both of them. You should get 20% off for six months. Squarespace.com slash 5 by 5 And uh, they've been a longtime supporter of us. We love Squarespace.com. Thank you very much uh, to them. And guys, please go check this out. And the next time that somebody you know, one of your friends, family, they say, oh, I want to I wanna, I wanna go make a blog, don't, don't send them to these other places. Send them there. Professional tools, easy to use. Squarespace.com. You know, it be, should be preserved as part of our cultural heritage is uh, Merlin's Squarespace ads, he's which very, are he's very impassioned. Marathon, yes, and long. They're long. I, I I try to spend about and I try to spend about a minute for the sponsor, and I, I try to do two to you know one my, my in my mind my mental ex- ratio of acceptability. Uh, you know, one about a minute of sponsor for about fifteen or twenty minutes of show. So if you yeah. do an hour show, you get a couple sponsors. You did an hour and a half, maybe you did three. I'm just saying that seems pretty reasonable. Compare that to regular radio or TV. Forget That's about much, forget about it. Much better. Uh, so L U V H E L T H Love Health L U V Health. I don't know <laughs> what is in that? the chat room. Says someone in the chat room <laughs> says, uh, "How would my argument apply to a band who only performs live or a ballet troupe?" Uh, there, those are all good questions. So, like, and as we talked about with applications and uh, you know computer systems and operating systems, depending on the age of the medium, the culture tends to come to some sort of agreement on how to best preserve stuff. So, uh, live performances. Well, we do record live performances, and that's kind of an audio video type of thing. It's like, do you need someone to to record every live performance? But most people want want to be preserved. In those cases, we've decided usually that if you are a recording artist and you release a recording, people would want uh, the original recording of that song to be reserved, the one that was released on the record or whatever. Uh, so we kind of decided that's the canonical version. But also in the case of like very famous live performances, we, you know, most artists do record their live performances at the soundboard because you don't know at the time you're doing it whether this is going to be culturally significant. For jam bands like Fish and stuff, that would be a good question for Marco. I mean, obviously there, Fish is taking the approach that they want everything to be preserved and they're just giving it away free to everybody. And this, this gets back to Scooter Computer's argument uh, he clarified in the chat room that what he's saying is that uh, <laughs> copyright should not be able to be used as a club to stop other people from preserving 1977 Star Wars. This goes back to how the, how the copyright o- owner and the artist are not the best stewards of the materials. If the culture decides that it's significant and are clamoring, as they are with Star Wars, to preserve the original version, they shouldn't be stopped uh, by by these laws from doing it. And and for a ballet troupe, I would imagine that it, I don't know much about dance, so maybe, maybe uh, Faith, when she comes back, can talk about this, but I would imagine that in the case of ballet, uh, that, I don't know, I don't know if they preserve choreography, like how, what is the, what is the, the mechanism for deciding that, that Swan Lake gets preserved? I mean, you, mm. you preserve the music and the story, do you also preserve the choreography? I don't know enough about that to know what, what the mechanism for pre- culturally preserving dance is. Uh, but, but yeah, I mean, this, what it gets back to is that in each medium, in each case of each thing, we have to agree that it's worth preserving, which is often a battle, see games and applications, and then agree on what we think is the best or most acceptable available way to preserve that, and that may change over time, and also not have laws that are preventing us from doing any of these things. Uh, so there are many barriers to 
the way I think the world should be. Mm-hmm. Uh, next topic. Mm-hmm. Do you think, think I've, I've thoroughly covered Star Wars? Oh, yeah. A- Andy seems to be... There's lots of... Uh, uh, movement in the in the in the uh, fan base of saying that that when Andy disagrees with somebody that's that's a feud like oh he disagrees with Marco's review and then you know then Andy's stirring things up and getting into fights with people I don't I think that's a little bit silly Andy is the least uh, likely person ever to say something mean about somebody or start a fight with somebody but we just have differing opinions uh, and uh, and I don't even know if my if Andy's opinion differs uh, from me on Star Wars it just seems like the points that I brought up he didn't talk about. So maybe he agrees with them and don't think they, they lie at the heart of most people's complaints about Star Wars. Uh, but they lie at the heart of my complaints about George Lucas and Star Wars. So next topic, Siri. Ooh. So we talked, I talked about Siri a while ago and I did all this hemming and hawing about how I was afraid that, uh, that as, as well as Siri works, people will think it's human level artificial intelligence and their expectations will go running away from the reality of Siri. Mm, right. So there's just no way that unless Siri literally is a tiny intelligent person who you've been married to for 20 years and knows your every <laughs> thought and whim, you will, be, you, you will be disappointed with it if it doesn't act that way. Uh, and so there have been some Siri backlash stories. The first one uh, I linked to Adam Enk's story and tidbits uh, titled Let's Stop with the Siri Baiting. And it was talking about the whole ginned up controversy where if you ask Siri to find an abortion clinic, it can't. And that shows that Apple is pro-life. <laughs> right. Uh, this is a weird example that combines politics, hot button issue with uh, another thing. What it comes down to, it's not entirely this, but a lot of what it comes down to is that since people don't understand that it's not a little person living inside there, or, or at the very least don't understand the implementation the first conclusion they come to when they see a reaction like that, where you know it seems to not be able to find abortion clinics, but it can find uh, other things, and uh, and it seems to know about abortion clinics, so why can't it find them? That is clearly an indication of a political stance of the creators, and not just a bug. Whereas any software developer, if they saw that, would never jump to the conclusion that this uh, this is a, a a political representation. Uh, and if they did find that, that would be the story. The story would be that you know this sure just looks like a uh, you know a bug or something that falls out of the way this thing is programmed. But in reality, we found out that there was a command from on high in Apple that it not be able to find these things because Apple was afraid of being too politically controversial or whatever. Uh, that's possible, but it's not the first thing people would jump to. The fact that the common sort of non-tech person's conclusion is to go to the other one first and not assume it's a software issue. That's not a specific case of like, oh, because Siri was presented as, as a, an intelligent assistant, it's getting this thing. I think any piece of software, if, if a web browser accidentally didn't let you go to the Planned Parenthood website because of some unrelated bug, people would assume that the web browser is. And no, the web browser has never been presented as an intelligent agent. Uh, so this particular story, I don't think is a vindication of my idea that there will be, that people will have unrealistic expectations of Siri. It's what it actually is, is an example of how people just don't understand software. And it would have happened exactly the same <laughs> if a new version of Google Chrome came out and did the same thing. They would say, that, you know, that Google Chrome, you know, that means that Google is pro-life or whatever. Although the most baffling thing is like Apple is the most hippy-dippy, or historically was, maybe now you can argue they're not, left-leaning, liberal, friend of Bill Clinton, Obama-supporting, like they're the most, you know, 
they're one, among what you would imagine to be the most left-wing companies culturally. And it, it seems weird that people jump to the conclusion that they are pro-life and like the, like the liberals will get offended. Right. You know, that, that's even more, even if you don't understand anything about, uh, software or, or bugs or stuff like that, wouldn't you say, God, that's kind of weird because I would think it would be the other way. And it would, you know, not be showing me how to get to a Garth Brooks concert because no one in Apple likes country music because they're all a bunch of uh, loony liberals, right? It's just, it's just weird. Uh, so that was kind of a, you know, silly non-story flare-up thing that happened. Uh, we did get a, what I think is an, uh, an example of an actual Siri backlash thing uh, from Gizmodo. Siri is Apple's broken promise. Right. Uh, did he already put that in the show notes? Yeah, all these things are in the oh, show Oh, okay, okay, good. So, oh, by the way, we was, have to we have to tell people how to get to the show notes. You go to five by five TV slash hypercritical slash forty five, uh, or if you subscribe to the show with RSS feed, you will see uh, notes and links and things that uh, John and sometimes I have collected over the course of the week. And we also want to say thanks to HelpSpot.com for making the show notes possible. But that's how you do it. People always say, "What are the show notes?" This is what you do. This is how you can participate in the show. You can follow along. John uh, does painstaking uh, work to make sure that they're in the exact order that he mentions them or that they are mentioned on the show. And, it, and John gets very angry when they're not. And I correct the uh, titles. I try to make a nice format. I don't just leave. The stuff that appears in the title oh, tag and HTML it. pages is wildly varying. So when I look at like the talk show links, which apparently no one cares enough about to, to uh it's, it's always me adding them. That's why. And yes, and, and while you don't care enough about them to change them, and Gruber doesn't seem to care that they're all messed up, but they got pipe symbols, and they got the site name first, and they got double hyphens, and just all mm. sorts of horrible stuff. I try to make the title Sometimes nice. I fix them. All right. Anyway, uh, so this story was more just straight up the alley, exactly what I was talking about. That Siri was presented as, as this big magical thing, but when I try to use it, it's not as smart as Apple seems to make it out to be. Uh and many people have said, see, this is what Syracuse warned about. It's, uh, you know, it's, people don't understand that it's not real AI and they have unrealistic expectations and now they're mad. Uh, I, I have to say that overall, I feared that the backlash would be much, much worse than it's been. One Gizmodo article and a couple of follow-ups that link to it is nothing compared to the worst case that I thought would happen. So I, I also think that you can't really say that I'm, I was vindicated in my naysaying. I, it does at least validate the concept that I was talking about, that, that, that this could happen. But like with anything popular, there's always the backlash story. There's the oh, wow story, there's the release, and then start your timer because the backlash stories will come. Uh, it remains to be seen. I think I'll have to wait a couple of years out. Like if you ask somebody who, who doesn't listen to the show and doesn't follow Apple online or anything but happens to have an iPhone, ask them a year from now, what do you think of Siri? And if they say... It's kind of neat, but I can't really get it to work the way I want, uh, or I was disappointed at it or whatever. I think that would be a more of a vindication of my dim stance on Siri that it's not it's not going to be it's not going to be uh, like they show on the commercial, uh, and people are not going to have that experience with it. Whether or not they continue to find Siri useful, they say, "Well, it doesn't work like it does in the commercial, but I still use it all the time for feature X, Y, and Z." I think Siri is still a success then, uh, and at the very least, it will have helped Apple sell a bunch of iPhones because it looks really cool. Uh, but this backlash article is, is straight up saying, uh, the, you know, they said it was awesome, but it's totally not because it's not an intelligent little human being inside there. And, and it goes on to complain about it being in beta. And there are some follow-up articles saying, well, it's got to be in beta because in, in an application like this, speech recognition, it's very data-driven. And the more you people have, the more people you have talking to it, the better they can, 
you know, there's a server-side component, which presumably Apple is honing over time. So you really need to launch it in beta because you can't get a big enough uh, representative sample uh, to really tune this feature until you've got people from all over the world talking into it. I don't know how much I buy that. I think that Apple has enough money to do a pretty big internal beta test, but it may have been a timing issue. But, but either way, we all know, people listening to this, we know how Siri works. The story I like to talk about when I think of things like this is many years ago, I was calling some customer support thing or whatever, and it was the first time uh, I'd ever gotten to a point in a phone tree where it said, instead of saying press 1 for blah, plus 2 for blah, plus star for not right, right? It said, please say the name of the department you would like to talk to or something like that. And regular, I don't know how that works on regular people, but since this was many years ago, and this is the very first time I had ever heard this before, right. I froze on the phone because my brain was going, they can't possibly. How are they going <laughs> to? Well, it is a limited vocabulary, but no, they can't. They're going to try to figure out with, with accents. Like I'm trying to figure out the implementation, and my mouth is not moving because my brain is trying to, trying to suss out if it is technically possible to do what this thing is claiming that it can do <laughs> with reliability. Like, what's the ROI on that? Is it actually cheaper than to hire? And oh, John. So, so my brain is totally fused, <laughs> you know, puzzling out how this implementation can work. And, you know, the timeout goes and it was like, <laughs> you know, that's how the nerd brain works. Gosh. I, you know, so it's a good thing it, you don't do that at the stoplight. <laughs> no, yeah. It, no, I mean, it only happens the first time. And, you know, and then event, you know, I remember what year this was, but it was a long time. It was, it was, back, <laughs> it was back before you'd ever heard of this. Like maybe it was like in the late 80s, early 90s, where the very first super limited vocabulary phone tree type things came out that had like, you know, a 90 percent success rate or whatever, uh, which would be completely unacceptable today. But <laughs> so so people like us are looking at Siri and seeing how the gears work and can use it. it understanding the underlying mechanisms with our expectations set correctly. Uh, regular people, I I don't know. It's going to be a long time before you can run run an ad like Apple's ads and have people buy it and have the exact same experience. I, and maybe people just don't expect that because it is an ad, and they say, "Well, obviously this is the best case scenario." And people will be able to pull off lots of the stuff in that ad, but there'll be stumbles, and sometimes it won't work, and then you'll you'll get, end up in a dark corner where nothing you say is getting the correct response from Siri because you're just into a realm or a, fra- a, a, a phrasing or something that the nat- natural language processing just can't figure out what you mean by. And that will be an experience that was totally not represented in the ad where it's just not working at all. Now you're just wasting your time and it's frustrating. And it would have been faster for you to just tap your fingers. But, but like I said in, in the original show on Siri, I think that even regular people will eventually find the three or four things that are actually way, way, way easier to do with Siri. And they will decide that Siri is the reply to text message without using my hands without without looking at the screen feature or they'll say siri is 100 percent the set a timer from egg feature or siri <laughs> is the uh reminder feature remind me to call somebody when i get home like whatever those things you you can you know you decide that siri works well for you and that's your niche like a gruber seems to have decided that it's kind of like a dictation so i don't have to tap things out while i'm on the go feature uh, even though that's not technically like siri you know dictation is just uh I don't know if they lump it under the branding, but it's a it's different than the whole figure out what I'm saying and interact with other applications and do stuff for them. So I, I think Siri will be a success as a feature, but it's going to be a long time before that Siri ad becomes a reality. Uh, next follow up. I think we only got two more. We may oh, actually we... get 
maybe get through all of them in the show. Huh. Well, because then I have one for you after that. All right. Well, maybe I'll, I'll do this one quickly, and then you can start yours oh, one you after. Oh, you might not care about mine. That's true. So this, was, this is a post. I, I, it's so hard for me to tell where things originally come from with this content republishing stuff. And you oh, got to yeah. figure out. It's like, you know, so this apparently was written by Ridley Scott, published on the Huffington Post. And it's entitled The Only Way to See a Film. And it's kind of a love letter to Blu-ray. Uh, so really, I'm, I don't even know if Ridley Scott wrote this or his PR people wrote it, but I assume he wrote it. Um, so this is quoting from the article. Ridley Scott says that the Blu-ray is the closest we've come to replicating the best theatrical viewing experience I've ever seen. So he does start by saying like the way movies should be shown is in the theater, but Blu-ray is, is the, the, the closest to replicating that experience. Uh, to which I would say that's true because when you go to the movie theater, you're subjected to about 30 minutes of ads that you don't want to see before they will let you watch the movie, which is very similar to Blu-ray. When you stick the disc in, you have unskippable previews. You fight with the stupid buttons to figure out, well, let me do pop-up menu. Will let me do frame uh, advanced button. What will get me to the movie? Uh, at least the Blu-ray, you've got a fighting chance to like play this game with the device to try to, you know, loading preview from the internet. No, 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 no. Don't load the preview from the internet. You, know, you just want to see the movie. In the movie theater, you've got no choice. You just got to sit there. I guess in the movie theater, it does have the advantage though, that you can just show up later if you know they're going to show a half an hour of ads. Just show up and, and sit down afterwards. So you, at least you can time manage there. Whereas on Blu-ray, you get to fight with the thing. Uh, and he goes on to say, it's never made sense to me why those preoccupied with how movies are delivered for years have written off physical media. So he doesn't understand what the whole big deal is with digital distribution. Probably because he's old. <laughs> or maybe because he's <laughs> maybe he's just lying and, and, uh, and towing the line for the Blu-ray industry, which many people have said the cynical thing is like, Hey, buy more Blu-rays. Uh, brought to you by the Blu-ray Alliance, right? It, shocking that he would have this opinion. But it could just be because, you know, like some people just don't like digital delivery. They want a physical thing in their hand because they're old. That's what they're used to. Uh, technology will need to make many more, this is quoting from him again, many more huge leaps before one can ever view films with the level of picture and sound quality many film lovers demand without having to slide a disc into a player, especially with the technical requirements of today's 3D movies. This is uh, another area where I agree with him. I, I too was disappointed uh, when I've talked about this in past shows when music went from like, you know, audio cassette, eight track, audio cassette, LP, CD. It was with the exception of the hard 16 kilohertz cutoff. And that's 16, it's not 16 kilohertz, 44 kilohertz, 16 bit, whatever the, the resolution of CDs are. There were many people who said that the limits imposed were even though they were the theoretical, close to the theoretical limits of human hearing, they didn't exceed them by enough or actually didn't exceed them at all, and that vinyl still had a better uh, dynamic range than CDs. And then there's the whole production thing where they heavily compress the music so that you're losing the highs and lows, and that's kind of a technic, more of a technical issue. Uh, but many people thought that CDs were kind of did a stutter step on the road to improved fidelity. Uh, that it was clear that, you know, a wax cylinder is not as good as vinyl. Uh, and it was clear that uh, an audio cassette was not as good as CD because of the hiss and the stretch and all these other things, right? But then we took a sharp turn, an inarguable sharp turn to less than CD quality when we went to digital distribution because the market decided that the convenience of MP3s uh, is more important than having something that's better than CD quality. So we had super audio CD and DVD audio, but they didn't really go anywhere because... Those, those weren't the dominant factors, right? And for people like me who are sticklers about quality, 
we were disappointed by that. We didn't want to listen to 128 kilobit AAC files. We wanted CD quality. That's why I continued to buy CDs and still continue to buy CDs because it's the highest quality version of that song that I can get. And the more I like a song, the more inclined I am to say, I want the CD version. Even the 256 kilobits, you know, even though I can never actually hear the difference, just philosophically, I feel like I want the CD quality one. Uh, because why, why pay what is usually ends up being a similar price for an album for a lower quality version? Uh, and to the credit of Apple and all the other people, they have increased the quality. And I think you can even get, can you get lossless versions in Apple Store anymore? Or now, can you get them? Mm-hmm. It's a good question. I don't know. Uh, I mean, there are lossless things. So, for example, Jonathan Colton uh, distributes his, his I think albums on CD, but he also distributes them digitally. And sure. you, you either get both, or you can pick what you want. You can download an AAC, you can download a FLAC, you can download Apple Lossless. So, I have Jonathan Colton's latest CD, and I also have Apple Lossless digital copies of it. This, uh, you know, true to form, not being someone who is a record executive from the Stone Age. He's doing it right eventually, and he's way ahead of everybody else. Eventually, I hope everybody gets on that bandwagon and realizes we want the best possible version we can get. But we took a detour there. And so video is the same way. Watching a movie in a movie theater, uh, but then VHS tapes were nowhere close to it. And DVD is like, oh, it's getting kind of close. It's looking pretty good. But then it's like, okay, now download it from iTunes and you get all these compression artifacts because we can't put like the super HD version. You know, like when you watch it in 1080i broadcast on, on HBO, that's higher quality due to, you know, a, a, a less efficient compression algorithm usually and a higher bit rate than you get if you download the iTunes version because they got to make the iTunes versions kind of small and they might be showed on an iPad or whatever. So the, the best version of television shows you can get is still often on television. Uh, we took a U-turn there or, or a detour there into saying, uh, once again, the convenience of being able to download them and to have many movies on your iPad or whatever is more important than the absolute best quality. And so Blu-rays, have the absolute best quality you can buy for seeing a movie in your home. But uh, people say that physical media is dead because they say, well, that's great and all, but the convenience of being able to stream it is much more important than the stupid physical discs. And it's made worse by the things that any thinking person hates about Blu-ray is that not only is Blu-ray an annoying, you got to put the disc in and do all that physical stuff, but it's just it's a customer hostile experience with all these things that you don't care about getting in the way of you watching your damn movie. Or when you stream it, the movie starts, <laughs> right? Maybe I'd rather watch a loading progress bar because the streaming server can't load me than have to sit there and actively fight with the Blu-ray player mm-hmm. to try to get. And, you know, it's loading Java to load all these applications, the little progress bar. The worst thing I think on these things is that the menu screens, which everyone is so proud of and people thought were all so whizzy on DVDs and stuff. The worst thing is that the menu screens often have spoilers for the movies by showing in the background yeah. pivotal scenes from the movie. If you haven't seen the movie before, like in the background, it's got, you know, Vader going, Luke, I am your father. You know, you'd be pissed. <laughs> yeah. I, I, you just want to close your eyes and say, I can't look at the menu screen. You got to, got to click through it real fast. I'll tell you, I'll tell you to to this day, still, I've never owned or even used a Blu-ray player. I've never even used one. They're actually worse than DVDs because DVDs all did all the same thing. You thought with Blu-ray, maybe they would learn the lesson of like, let's not put into the spec a requirement that you honor the, I'm sorry, you can't skip this bit. Like, you know, if you want the the, the, the official DVD player stamp of approval from the stupid consor- consortium that controls the rights and stuff, you must honor this uh, this bit that says you can't, you know, this horribly consumer hostile bit that says you can't skip this preview. And so the player manufacturers, because they're a bunch of idiots, and they're like, well, whatever, we want to sell players. We want to have the logo. They honor it. The only people who don't honor it are like is Asian manufacturers that are outside the law. And the smart, in other words, the smart ones. It's just... 
yeah, the Blu-ray format is is horrible. Uh, and so here's really Scott again. Blu-ray for the foreseeable future remains the finest technology to preserve the impact and enjoyment of watching movies at home. And, and someone, I was complaining about this article on Twitter, and someone said, "What's what's your what, what's wrong with Blu-ray?" I said, "Everything except for the fidelity of the content." <laughs> Because I continue to buy Blu-rays, I have Netflix subscription with the Blu-ray option because that is the best possible version of these movies that you can see at home. And that is the only good thing about Blu-ray, that it has the best possible version of these things. So you get 1080p, very high quality audio and video, better than you can get over your television. Because I don't know if any, do any television services uh, broadcast 1080p? I think the best you get is 1080i, I'm not sure, at least in this country. Uh, uh, you know, the least amount of compression... The Blu-rays hold a lot, but everything else about Blu-rays is just horrible. Uh, so it, when I read this article, I, I said on Twitter, this was written, uh, apparently Ridley Scott has never actually tried to watch a Blu-ray movie. And many people said, well, he probably has his assistant uh, start 20 minutes beforehand and queue it up and he just <laughs> into the room and it's play, right? Uh, even, like, even during the playing of the movie, say you pause it, mm -hmm. they have, so every, a part of the Blu-ray spec is that anyone who write, makes a Blu-ray disc can do custom appearance for the progress bar that shows how far you're along you are on the movie. So when you hit pause, it brings up a little TiVo-like progress bar. And like in The Lord of the Rings, the progress bar will be like all brown and like have stone on it and like vines going, you know. They all draw their own stupid custom progress bars to be within the theme of the movie. Like that's just a waste of everybody's time. No one wants to see that. It's stupid. It, you know, someone, someone had to spend time doing that. And that means everyone's got to spend time doing that. And they do all sorts of weird whizzy menu animations and stuff like this. That's not what we want. That someone that that's like that's like a restaurant websites where you show it to the person and say, "I want it to be this cool thing where you fly into it," and I want to, you know, so they got to use flash for everything, and and you show it to the boss, and they're like, "Wow, that's awesome! Make more things fly in." That's what the boss wants because he's an idiot. That's not what customers want. Customers don't care what your progress bar looks like. Customers don't care that your progress bar matches the theme of your movie. If your progress bar takes a longer time to come up or is jumpy or crashes their Blu-ray player because of some weird Java exception because it's not yeah. It's, it's missing the forest for the trees. You know, that, uh, to give another Apple example, Apple does not provide customizable progress bars for iTunes content. But if they listen to content creators, they say, well, it would be great if, if when we distribute Spider-Man and iTunes, if Apple TV would show a cool Spider-Webby progress bar. That would be awesome. Executives would love that, right? And Apple would say, that's not what customers want. We're not wasting our time on that stuff. That's my Ridley Scott Blu-ray rant. Mm. What, is, what, is, what is your topic to you? I don't even want to bring it up. I'll save it for next week. Just tell me what it is. Nah, I'll, 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 do it I'll, I'll decide if it's more interesting than what I have here. Do you have more? I do, but I, I mean, we can skip. What, well, what, tell me what your thing is. I, I don't, I want to throw off your game, uh, but there is a new, uh, recently, um, John Lasseter was interviewed on Charlie Rose. And he talked about Pixar a little bit. But he talked about uh, some of the upcoming movies. He talked about Brave. He talked about the the uh, the new dinosaur movie. But then he talked about this other movie that it's. It, I think I don't know what they're calling it, but the people wait, are wait, sort before of you, before you move on. The new dinosaur movie. What are you yeah, talking about? Some that? new dinosaur movie coming out from Pixar. Yeah. All right, it's news to me, I, and that's, I'm glad you told me about this. Monsters now University. Will, now I will seek out. Uh, this Charlie Rose interview. All right, and uh, so anyway, this this I th I think they're calling the movie Mind, or at least that that's what it's the co what they're calling it right now. But in this movie Mind, you have a, uh, a a female protagonist 
because apparently the whole movie takes place inside her mind with her emotions and thoughts as uh, characters. So I don't. This This is also a Pixar movie. Yeah, I'm talking about Pixar. All right, I'm just, you know, John Lasseter could be talking about all sorts of things. No, I mean, it's all John Pixar. Car- John Carter of Mars is not a Pixar movie, but I can imagine John Lasseter talking about it. No, this is his stuff. All right, all right. So go ahead. So this movie, Mind, it, it's going to have these characters that are the emotions and thoughts of the of the main character, but the main character is a girl, Brave. For those who don't know, the main character is, uh, is, is female. So I wanted to see what you thought about these. I figured you were up, you would be on top of this. No, the only, the only upcoming Pixar thing that I knew about is Brave. I I, I tend not to be uh, the kind of person who seeks out all possible news of upcoming projects. Huh. Like, you just want to know exactly what's coming out. I used to be like that. The last time I was like that was, for example, about Star Wars prequels, and we see how that turned out. So maybe that is why I'm not so into it. But I basically want to be spoiler-free. Uh but if this news, this Pixar stuff tends to service in a bunch of blog posts, I'll eventually see it. Uh, well, I, 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 have, I have the article. With, the article is over on uh, what I would have assumed would have been your favorite, your favorite website, thepixartimes.com. Uh, and I also have the Charlie Rose with the interview, which uh, took place uh, a week ago today on uh, Friday, December 2nd. I have both of those in the, uh, in the show notes. Well, I will check it out. So... On Pixar front, people keep asking about Cars too. I still have not seen it, uh, and uh, many people continue to say the thing that I tried to counteract the first time I talked about Cars too, which was, "Hey, it's a flop. That's what you wanted." No, I didn't want a flop. I wanted a flop that flopped because it was too ambitious. I have not heard anybody say that Cars two was not a good movie because it was too ambitious. They say the opposite that it was not a good movie because it was too lazy or whatever. And I still haven't seen it myself, so I don't have a particular opinion on it yet. I will eventually see it. Is it on streaming yet? You you would know this. Your car is aficionado I, in the house. I uh, I don't know if it's. Has, has your son seen Cars Two yet? Yeah, we uh, we bought it. Oh, you uh, you all right? So you're I, from I so, silly me. You have to you bought it, all right? You're not even streaming it. I thought you might have known if it was available on Netflix. I, hope, no, I don't know. I'll, I'll eventually. See I don't it. like I, I don't like it. I have to be honest. My kids have seen it in the theater with like you know school and camp and stuff like that. So and they haven't been begging me to buy a copy of cars too but in general they're not like my son used to be heavily into cars and i guess he kind of outgrew it and so now he's not begging me to bit to get cars too and i'm just very curious do you pronounce it gigawatts or gigawatts if you're talking about back to the future you have to say gigawatts well i know i know but i'm asking you but the actual word is giga well pimples say yeah i know there well, are different I, I, I go gig. I go giga because it's gigs on computers, and that's what I go with. And okay. You really want to get to debate? It's gigabyte versus gibibyte, the, the the base two versus base ten business. Well, there's but, an interesting Wikipedia entry. I, I will add to our show notes as well because it says the initial G of giga can be pronounced a hard G like giggle, or a soft G as in giant. Yeah. The latter pronunciation was formalized with the United States in 1960s and 1980s with the issue by the U.S. National Bureau of Standards of Pronunciation Guides for the metric prefixes. A prominent example is found in the pronunciation of gigawatts in the 1985 movie Back to the Future. And I just, as a, sci- as a scientist, I wanted to, you to have an opportunity to weigh in on this controversy. That's what English tends to do. Is just, well, just put the other pronunciation as, as second or third pronunciation and just be done with it. So can uh, so, so from so now as for, on, as for mind and brave, so brave, brave. I, I, 
since I'm I'm into the spoiler free phase of my life, I didn't read what it was all. I did watch the trailer, but I didn't read what it was all about. I will watch it and be hopeful that it's a good movie. I'm glad that it has a female protagonist, not because I think there has to be an equal number of each, but since I hope that it signals a change in uh, kind of the rut that Pixar had gotten into uh, with uh, the, the the style of movie that it makes. Uh, and I am, uh, what it reminds me of is another good non-Pixar uh, computer animated movie, which is uh, How to Train Your Dragon, which had a similar kind of, I don't know if it's a similar time, Viking setting instead of... Uh, Scottish oldie times, but I think uh, they remind me of each other in terms of the setting and Mm -hmm. I have good memories of How to Train Your Dragon so I hope that the Pixar movie will at least be up to that. The mind thing it sounds, that sounds pretty ambitious and high concept. Uh, The fact that as a female protagonist doesn't really mix in there it's the whole idea that this is going to be a movie. This seems like the kind of ambitious movie that you want them to make. Right, well it's it's definitely different than all the it's not like, you know is it even going to be a family film? Are kids going to understand a, a, a you know a manifestation of emotions inside someone's head? Sure, they can. Yeah, I guess. Sure, maybe. they can. I don't know. Uh, so I I think that does sound interesting, and I'm looking forward to it. What I'm really interested about is uh, the Pixar alumni movies. So we've got Brad Bird doing the next Mission Impossible, and Mission Impossible as a franchise has been very uneven. Uh, but Brad Bird, I really, really love, and I can't imagine him ever doing anything that's not great. So I, I'm looking forward to Mission Impossible and seeing, uh, seeing uh, what, uh, what I hope. It's kind of like you did the whole thing with the Bond movies, and what a lot of people say, and I agree with, is that the best Bond movies, the, the movies that are, are that get have the most of what I want from Bond in recent years have been the Bourne movies. And a lot of people don't like the Bourne movies and think that they don't have what they want. Love those they want, movies. They want the the fun and schlock and women from the Bond movies, but I always like competent Bond, uh, you know, adult and that type of thing. So the Bourne movies are the kind of spy movies that I liked. And yeah, some of those were a little uneven too, but in general, that's what I like out of spy movies. So I'm hoping that Mission Impossible will be another example of the stuff that I like out of Bond movies done better than the recent Bond movies. Although I have, I have liked the recent Bond movies, so maybe that's love not fair. The, not, not, the, not the most recent one but i do like daniel craig uh, coming as bond and didn't like the tail end of pierce brosnan right you know so i read I, I read though that they are going to be doing some kind of new born related movies but that they're not going to be about jason Bourne. I, i'm not so much into the franchise i never read the books i just like the kind of gritty more realistic spy type movie where like there'll be a fight in the Bourne movie where it's just two people in hand-to-hand combat and you feel like it oh, makes you feel about what it more like what it would be like to fear for your life uh and the only way you're going to get out of this life is to kill somebody else and you know nobody has guns and you just have your hands and it's just much more tense than shooting a bazooka at somebody or driving oh, yeah. some trick car through, you know that that's i like that grittiness and that's why i like the best parts of the Bourne movies uh, so the Bourne franchise, they're going to make more movies in that universe. If they are, if they're also as kind of gritty and realistic and take themselves seriously as the Bourne movies, I'm all for that. Uh, and the other one that I'm looking out for is uh, John Carter of Mars, which is uh, Andrew Stanton who did Wall-E. Am I getting this right, chat room? I'll be very embarrassed if I've got the wrong uh, Pixar alumni. But it's a live action movie featuring uh, Tim Riggins from uh, Friday Night Lights, which I also watched. And I don't know how this is going to turn out. Like. But in both cases, it's uh, someone who I came to know through their animated movies moving to live action. And part of that is like, 
it's kind of disappointing to me. And then it's like, to I guess even to those people, it, maybe they just wanted to do live action. But don't you get the feeling it's like, well, I made animated movies, but I always wanted to be a real director and make a live action movie, right? Like this, that it's the higher prestige thing. That could just me be be me projecting, but I do mm-hmm. see that a lot uh, from especially from the older generation. Like my parents won't take animated movies seriously. I certainly take them very seriously, and I don't think there's, there's any need to go to live action to get more prestige or to be more respected. But the reality is that animated movies are in a separate category in the Oscars, which sucks and is stupid. Uh, but that's the reality. And a lot of people, if you grew up in that environment, even perhaps if it's subconsciously, you think, I'm not a real director until I do a live action movie with Tom Cruise or whatever. So I'm looking forward to how those are going to turn out and how those people made the transitions. Mostly because I think both people are so incredibly talented and so wonderful. And they're both coming out of an environment where uh, the artists and the story have been so dominant and these movies I I'm assuming are going to be much more constrained because neither one of those people is Steven Spielberg mm-hmm. or Kubrick or someone who gets to write their own and say, you know, I get to do exactly what I want. They're going to have to work within a system, a system that doesn't value the, uh, the artists as much as where they came from. Will they still be able to make a great movie? Yeah. My last thing was that some lame link beta article on CNN that said TV isn't broken, so why fix it? But I'm not going to go into that one because it will just end up being a rehash of what's wrong with TV. The, uh, the fact that that article exists, I find vaguely humorous. But if you if you want to read the straw man that people will say does not exist, <laughs> someone wrote that article. An old person saying, TV's fine. We don't need to change it. It's fine. So I'll leave it in the show notes. People can look at it themselves. <laughs> That's the first time I've heard you do a, a good voice. A good voice? All my voices are good. Come on. Well, your regular voice is good, but that was the first time I heard you do a character voice. I have so, I have so many character voices. Let's They're, hear them. They all sound the same. No, I, I, <laughs> was that all of them? That I don't know. I, they have to be spontaneous. It's not, it's not, you know, creativity's not a faucet. You can't just turn it on. <laughs> oh, on. I see. I see. Got to be natural. Sure. Too much pressure. Right. All right. Well, sounds I like we're wrapping up. I think we gave people their money's worth today. Huh? Oh, yeah. So we're sorry we missed you last week. Yeah. Everybody, yeah, but. I, I literally could not talk. This isn't now that I have a regular podcast, my frequent illnesses that take away my voice suddenly are more significant, right? Because you get a, a baby, so your voice, you're a voice actor now, you're a talent. My voice, yeah, my voice is my passport, you know, verify me. <laughs> so. We'll get email about that. So you can follow John Syracuse on Twitter at Syracuse S I R A C U S A. There's no Z in that. And I'm Dan Benjamin on Twitter. And uh, again, if you want to follow along with our shows, you can just go to 5x5.tv slash hypercritical, pick the show, and uh, and follow along. I get a lot of emails from people asking, they'll say, I hit play and I was listening to the show. And as I was looking at the page, I thought I would like to click one of these links. So I clicked it and it took me away from the page. Well, there's a little checkbox there. You check the box and it says open links in new window or you can hold down if you're lucky enough to be on a Mac, you can hold down the command key and I'm not sure what key it is in Windows, but that will make your browser open in a tab. You also can click the little pop up audio player link that will pop up an audio player that will let you hit play and then you can do whatever you want on the other page. So those are the solutions to that problem. And uh, if you have comments, whether you would like us to read them on the air 
uh, or not, you can share them by going to 5by5.tv slash contact. And we want to say thanks to everybody who has been rating the show in iTunes. Also very helpful getting new people to find out about it. And uh, thanks to squarespace.com. Thanks to smilesoftware.com. Thanks to johnsyracusa.com. Oh, wait, you don't have that. I, I tried to get it. Could not. What is it? I don't even know. I don't, it might just be someone squatting on it. It was available for years. I didn't get it. And then when I went to try to get it, maybe five years ago, it was gone. Yeah, that's not the, not the domain. It's really the worst. Wanted. Yeah. Terrible. Just terrible. What I'm thinking of now, which what? I should put, put here instead of the after dark so people can make sure they hear it, is that so when once we cap the show off, which will be in a couple seconds, we're going to discuss titles as we usually do, right? Absolutely. But now the title selection process is entirely dominated in my mind with visualizing what the illustration will be at 5x5illustrated.com. Oh, five yeah. We, you know, we get to talk five about that. So now every time I think of a title, I'm going to be thinking, that's a great title, but the, I would like to see the illustration for the other one more. So I, I'm going to try to put 5x5illustrated out of my mind. That's 5x5illustrated.tumblr.com. Speaking of 5x5, by the way, every time I... I this is fully about, integrated into the site. They don't have to go there anymore. Oh, is it? Yes. I, I wasn't was not aware. Yeah, go, go to your... The next time you're ep- editing an episode, you will see at the very bottom of the edit episode page in the CMS, there is a little blank that says you can either upload an image or you can put in a direct link to it. It's only for these illustrations, but you can you can control click or right click on his image on 5x5 Illustrated, get the URL, paste it into that box, hit submit, and it will automatically download it from his site, upload it to our assets uh, cloud uh, server in the CDN, and uh, put it in with the show, and then it'll show up in the show, and when you click on it, it'll have a nice modal uh, box that comes up that lets people look at it large size, and it even has a link to his to his credit to it, for to the website. This is with the blessing of the person who makes the site. I'm assuming, correct? Oh yeah, he and I have been talking about it. All he right, he just, loves the idea. Yes. So so yeah, that, but uh, I was trying to get to with the five by five thing is that I tell people about five by five, and you you never bring this up, so maybe it's not an actual problem. But every time I say five by five, people don't know if it's like F-I-V-E or the number five, and they don't know if the by is an X. So for the people listening who don't know, it's the numeral five, the letter B, the letter Y, then the numeral five, then a dot, then TV, not com. So it's five by five dot TV is what I just spelled out. Uh, this is one of the things. Or, that or they can type in five, F-I-V-E, by B-Y, F-I-V-E. Dot TV. They can do that too. And it will redirect, but it's not the dot com. Really, I mean, I guess the reason it's not a problem because people who are not listening to the show type everything into the Google search box. And if you type five by five, no matter how you type it into the Google search box, I have to imagine yeah. that if you type five by five podcast or five by five hypercritical or anything having to do with anything, you will find. Yeah. You will probably have very good page rank. Uh, but yeah, so the five by five illustrated.tumblr.com, it's the five by five is spelled the same way as the five by five. All right, so that's it. I don't want to go any longer. I just wanted to get the, the 5 by 5 Illustrated in there and explain that now is, it is totally messing with my ability to select titles. Sorry. That's okay. It's messing in a good way. I love it. I love it. Great. All right. 
Well, that's it then for this show. That's right. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Bye.